Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Commodity supercycles are not about the underlying economy globally. They are about a lack of supply. The reality is supply during a supercycle bull is such an overwhelming issue that commodity prices can still rise, even if demand is off a little bit. Hello and welcome to the Barron Streetwise podcast. I'm Jack Howe, and the voice you just heard is John LaForge. He's the head of real asset strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute, WIFI, as it's known to absolutely no one. John is a commodities guy, and in a moment, he'll lay out the case that we're in a bullish super cycle that could last for years longer. We'll also hear from a retail analyst who says a recent lull in store closings just ended. Get ready for 50,000 more closures over the next five years. Listening in is our audio producer, Jackson. Hi, Jackson. Hi, Jack. I feel like we haven't been talking about zinc enough on the podcast. What, oh, what do yeah. you know about zinc? Tell me, give me all your zinc facts. Tell me everything. In a finance podcast, you got to talk about the supply and demand. It's it's mined. It, it probably has to be processed, so that's the supply. And demand, there's zinc and sunscreen. I feel like this is a school essay and you've been asked for a thousand words. You've got a solid 50 and you're, and you're padding, but go ahead. <laughs> what Do you know what pennies are made out of? Uh, zinc? Oh, yeah, you got it. 98% <laughs> zinc. I don't know how, do you know how I guessed. I don't know how I guessed. So, so I, the sunscreen and pennies on the demand. Side. I came prepared with some zinc facts. I've been doing a little zinc reading. Zinc comes from ore that's only about 5% to 15% zinc. So what miners do is they take that ore, they pulverize it, and they sort it, and they come up with a zinc concentrate that's about... 55% zinc, and that gets sent to smelters. And smelters use high heat to turn the concentrate into 99% plus pure zinc. And zinc, as you say, is used for many things. The biggest use around the world is for galvanization. You, you add it to steel to, to make it corrosion resistant. So it's a lot of uses in the construction industry. There is a glut of zinc concentrate at the mines, but there has been bottlenecks in the smelting business. Last year, smelting was constrained, and so you ended up with very high prices for finished zinc. Just this past week, there was a 19% price increase for the fees charged by smelters, and zinc experts say that that is a bearish sign for the metal because it's a big incentive to create more finished zinc. That's not the only thing you have to watch. Of course, you have to keep an eye on construction demand in China, where they use a lot of galvanized steel. You have to watch the war in Ukraine because smelting is very energy intensive. And, uh, you know, the disruption of energy supplies in Europe has knocked out some smelting capacity there. So if there's more energy that comes down the road, could be a smelting. Is this rebound. episode going to be just about zinc? It's not. I'm exhausted already. That was everything I know. That was a little more than everything I know about zinc. And this is why that I find commodities impossible. This is why I don't own a commodity fund, because first of all, 
stocks seem complicated to people who are new to them, but I think they're quite simple. You can invest in an index fund and you own shares of businesses, and those businesses are run by very smart people who have incentives to make their shares go higher, which is what I want because I own the shares too. So it's easy. You buy an index fund and then you let the smart people do their thing. And, you know, conditions change. You can follow the news if you want, but you don't really have to do anything about it. There's other people handling it. With commodities, there are no smart managers. There's no long-term growth strategy or anything like that. No competitive advantages. There's just supply and demand. You know, this was just zinc, but all that stuff I said, that doesn't begin to tell you about, you know, if you've got a commodities fund, what's going to happen with soybean prices, right? There's a drought in Argentina. It was supposed to get better this year. It's not getting better as quickly as people thought. And the, the USDA just reduced its forecast for Argentinian soybean and corn output. What does that mean for prices? I don't know. Uh, in France, you had uh, strikes at refineries that constrained output there. What, what has that meant for the, the crack spreads between crude oil and gasoline, the, the price differential? There's a lot to keep track of, and uh, it changes all the time, and there's no one out there who's watching it for you, which makes commodities impossible in the short term. And in the long term, why bother? I think, or I have thought, because stocks beat commodities over the long term. And anyhow, if you've got one of those index funds, companies hold some commodities and some of those companies in the index fund are miners or their crop processors or their drillers so you know you kind of have your commodity exposure right this this falls under a broad investment philosophy of mine which uh, i will call why bother when people ask me do i need the answer is almost always no you need almost nothing i'm i'm an investment minimalist bordering on a portfolio nudist <laughs> Now Don't that, change the podcast tagline to that, whatever you do. I heard myself say that out loud and it didn't say, I feel like we already lost advertisers, but well, you just need some index when you need some blue chip stocks, you need some bonds and, uh, you know, yeah, you a smidgen of small caps, a smidgen of overseas stocks and you're okay. The next thing people, if people want to talk to you about, you know, private equity and crypto and this and that, eh, why bother? That's my philosophy. What do you think? Are you telling me I have to throw away my hard red versus soft red winter wheat PowerPoint presentation I had? Well, I I, I want to see it. I, I like to follow all the details. I just don't like to do any of it. So, But, but I heard a compelling case this past week from a commodity expert at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. His name is John LaForge. I'm looking at a note. It's, it's titled, The Commodity Bull Supercycle. It sounds exciting. Super anything sounds exciting. Well, what's a what's a super cycle, and and why are we in one? Uh, sure, uh, actually, it's super for me because I've been studying super cycles for a long, long time. I've been doing this for thirty years, and the problem with that is you have to be quite honest with your bosses that hey, for ten years, stay away from commodities, and then for another ten years, hey, this is the time, and it's now the time. John says that commodities are prone to long super cycles, both bullish and bearish. And there are technical reasons and fundamental reasons, but mostly behavioral reasons. Everybody just tends to overdo everything in both directions. They do it because of the lack of supply. Uh, but eventually what happens is price goes high enough. Everyone and their mother's out looking for the stuff. They find it and prices collapse for 10 years. Then we wake up after that 10-year period and realize, oh, we don't have enough of this stuff. And we go through the whole cycle again. 
John says that there have been six bullish super cycles for commodities going back to 1791. It lasted from nine to 24 years apiece. Right now, we're in a seventh that began about three years ago, March 2020. To get an idea of what one of these bullish super cycles looks like, you can you can look at the last one. It lasted from 1999 to 2008. Uh, there were some commodities that peaked a few years later than that. And there were some absolutely stunning price runs. Oil at one point went from $10 to $150 per barrel. Copper went from 60 cents a pound to $4.60 a pound. Gold went from 250 to 1900 an ounce. And corn went from $2 a bushel to $8. John says super cycles are like black holes. There's a gravitational pull that's difficult for individual commodities to escape. So if you're trying to figure out, hey, what's going to be a better bet in the years to come, tin or palladium or butter, you don't have to bother. You just buy a fund that holds a little bit of everything. And when the buller super cycle appears to be ending, you sell it. And how do you tell? We'll come to that. One thing to know about commodity super cycles is that there are bearish ones too, and they can last a long time and have brutal price declines, much worse than typical stock declines. The last bearish super cycle for commodities from 2008 to 2020, it brought prices for a broad commodities index down 73%. And that helps to explain why the bullish super cycles take so long to play out. Consider oil. We've heard from oil executives on this podcast, and they've told us that their investors demand discipline. They're not sure that high prices are going to last. They don't want them to ramp up production too quickly and end up right back in a long slump. John says that's denial about what's happening, and it's a hallmark of the early stages of a bullish super cycle. Eventually, what will happen is these same investors will say, hey, we're missing out on a lot of upside here. It's time to ramp up production, and companies will begin to do that. And then, as he says, it'll turn into a free-for-all. And so what happens during these 10-year periods is the beginning of them is a lot of denial. It's a lot of, they don't believe it because the prior 10 years really stunk up the joint. And they just don't want to, they don't want to be caught in what they were over the last 10 years. So the whole idea of, of we don't have enough commodities and a new bull begins, the reason it takes 10 years to play out is because the beginning of it is a lot of denial by the producers. Uh, then eventually after a few more years, I'll, I'll give it two more years, the producers start going, huh wait a minute, we can make a lot of money here. Let's do this. But they still do it in increments. But at the very end, it's an all out. It's a free for all. Hey, look at the money we could have made for the last eight years. Our board is now really ticked off at us. We could have been opening up new mines. We could have been buying other companies. Let's go do it. If I had to pick one sign of the end of the last bullish commodity super cycle, it would probably be the 2011 purchase by Caterpillar of a mining equipment company called Bucyrus. It was a big, expensive deal. Everyone wanted uh, metals of all kinds, and this was a way for Caterpillar to get in on supplying all that equipment. And of course, it came right before a long slump in metals prices. John says that's more or less what a blow-off top looks like. And then you get the last three years, the sign of the producers will really start getting tricky and will start buying companies, like you talked about. They'll start... All of a sudden, their production quotas will go from 6% year-over-year growth to 30. You go, aha, we're going we're gonna to clean up. Um, and prices, commodity prices, tend to momentum-wise really start to pick up speed because investors have finally been convinced this is a good place to be, and they start piling in. 
We're not nearly there yet. We're three years into the current bullish super cycle, according to John, and you know, typical one lasts longer than 10 years. Also, commodities prices broadly are up 80% during the current cycle, but the average for all bullish super cycles is 247%. So John says you can expect years more of stock-like returns for commodities, but not necessarily stock-like returns for stocks. Stocks don't have to do poorly. They just don't do their normal 10% plus yearly gains when commodities are in their super cycle. So technically, you could say stocks struggle. Um, and in, in the case of this answer, what you find is commodities can do well, even if stocks don't go anywhere. In fact, it's quite common uh, that stocks struggle to, to put up their normal gains. It doesn't mean stocks have to go down. It just means they really have a hard time putting up those 10% plus annualized gains when commodities are doing what they're doing. That's an important point. We got a reading on inflation this past week that showed it's still high, but the rate is coming down. And investors are looking around for signs of earnings deterioration for companies or weakness for the broader economy. And if you buy commodities as protection for inflation, you might be thinking, well, now's the time to sell, not buy. But John says that a bullish commodity super cycle is all about a shortage of supply. You don't necessarily need a hot economy. And often, you don't get a hot stock market. Last year, stocks and bonds both stunk. Commodities gained 16%. I asked John how best to invest in commodities, and he said active management can make sense. The commodities themselves, I'd recommend not only a basket, but active management. It really does matter in the commodity space. It would stock land you can go do a, an indexed fund and you know do quite well. Uh, commodities, you do have to deal with a roll yield, uh, which is very important. And you have another portion of it, which is you, you basically put your cash in bonds for a period of time. Um, so not to get too complicated, but in commodities, it's a little trickier for investors. So I'd say go with active management. John ran commodities research for years for a firm called Ned Davis Research before coming to Wells. And early on at Wells, before prices started running, he didn't exactly get the celebrity treatment. For about uh, 2017 to about 2020, when I walked around the halls here at Wells, I would get the looks of, why do we hire this guy? This guy keeps talking about how ug ugly his baby is. Like, you know, why are we even uh, talking to this guy? And, and everyone had the, even my bosses had the running joke. And I said, ah, it's going to come sooner or later, guys. And and fortunately, I was settled here at Wells. So in, in March of 2020, uh, that's when we started pounding the table. It was like, here it comes, here it is. And everyone's like, are you crazy? This is COVID. We're all locked up. And uh, so it was kind of fun making that call. So for, yeah, the last three years have been, have been good. I'm hearing parallels to the story about Noah and the Ark. You're Noah, and it just started raining. <laughs> If you're looking to add a bit of broad commodity exposure, there's a passive ETF. It's called iShares GSCI Commodity Dynamic. I'm still going with the name, Jackson. Roll Strategy ETF. The ticker there is COMT. It uses a rules-based future strategy, and it costs 0.48% a year. I feel like that's a good deal relative to the length of the name. If you want active management, uh, there's a fund that Morningstar gives high marks. It's called BlackRock Commodity Strategies Fund. The ticker is B-I-C-S-X. 
Don't even think of buying the A shares. They charge you as much as five and a quarter percent upfront on those. Yuck. There are institutional shares that are a much better deal. They don't charge you up front. There's a 0.72% ongoing fee. The initial investment minimum is preposterous, $2 million. But they waive it for many employee retirement accounts. And if you buy through some broker mutual fund marketplaces, they cut the minimum to 1000 bucks. What do you think, Jackson? Has John talked you into it? Are you going, uh, are you going super cycle? Oh man, I'm looking. I'm looking for those funds you've talked about, but my my only worry is it involves timing the market, which I'm I'm not sure I'm very good at. But there might be other indicators. I'm going to send you a, a photo right now. Okay, let me take a look. Is this email? No, no, it's your your message. Oh my god! Text. What did you say? Oh, on the phone. On my phone. Right? Okay. On the phone, something yeah. Something crazy yeah. would like to. Okay, hold on. This is part of a new segment we're going to be doing called "Old Guy Takes a Long Time to Find <laughs> Photo." It's, on, it's just like oh just wow. Any... So this is the draft class. This is the NBA draft class, and the top photo is what year? Uh, Two thousand three. So we have LeBron James there on the right. Uh, Oh, wow. And so you're talking about the boxiness of the pants. These gentlemen are wearing very large, very baggy pants. And and down below, what year is that draft class? That's 2018. Those pants are so slim fitting, it looks painful. And, and there could they're... not be a more dramatic difference. Where did you find this photo? Have you just, you just track sports pant sizes or what's it was going go, on? Going around Twitter, but, but I'm thinking, yeah. you know, what was happening in 2003 in commodities? These guys look like they're smuggling canned hams around the ankles of their pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, you know, 2003, that was the beginning of the commodity bull cycle, 2018, deep in the right. bear cycle. Right. I think when those pants uh -huh. start getting big and boxy again, it, it's time yeah. to buy. This is a new indicator. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call John back and I'm going to ask him if he knows anything about this one. What do you say we take a quick break here? We come back, we talk about stores and closures. Sure. You happy with that? Sure. You want to try it once more? <laughs> we can't do try, this every try, week. Once <laughs> more. Once more. Okay, wait, sure. What's some gravitas? No, gravitas. Lower. Sure. Sure. Does it make it more authoritative? Uh, <laughs> Dude, I'm just kidding. It's your last week. Sure. Okay. sure. <laughs> I gotta, yeah, I got. I gotta break I your chops a little uh, bit. All right, sure, sure. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome back. Jackson, we have talked before about the retail reckoning, right? About a lot of the malls have fallen on hard times and they're shedding stores and some of the chains are cutting back in their stores and, and some chains are going out of business. 
And we've talked about the fact that the big reason, yes, there's been a rise in e-commerce, but just America relative to other developed nations appears overstored, right? They built a lot of store capacity over the decades, and now there's a reckoning where they have to reduce square footage. But here's a figure that fascinated me. In 2021, squarely during the pandemic, there were 11,000 net stores added across the U.S. Just when you thought that retailers would have fallen on hard times, there'd be more closures than ever. There were actually more stores added than closed. And the reason has to do with some of the assistance that was giving it, given out during the pandemic to stores to keep people on payrolls. I saw a note recently from UBS analyst Michael Lasser, and it says that he predicts a return to closures and not just a little return, 50,000 plus store closures ahead over the next five years. I reached out to him to learn more about that. So there had been a steady decline in the number of store closings uh, from 2015 to 2020, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 to 5,000 per year. Then what happened, the pandemic happened, there was an overwhelming amount of direct and indirect support that was provided to the retail sector directly in the form of pay tech protection program uh, that uh, gave direct support to businesses and indirect support through things like stimulus checks, uh, child tax credit. And as a result, in 2021, there was actually an increase in the total number of stores in the United States in the neighborhood of uh, 11,000. And uh, last year was actually an okay year for most retailers because they recognize sales in nominal dollars. And when inflation is running so hot, their sales are, are doing pretty well because they're passing along such intense price increases. So that also helped. Our belief is now that those factors are behind us, this is going to be the tipping point where we see an acceleration in store closings. Is it going to be from entire chains closing down or is it going to be from you know, chains just, just trimming the number of stores or both? So three, three things. One, we are seeing big chains that are, are experiencing challenge. Bed Bath & Beyond is a good example. And there are others who are trimming their footprints. Number two, the shopping mall. That is going to be an area of disproportionate share gains for the large, well-positioned players and, and, and really um, a disproportionate amount of, of closings. To put that in perspective, um, as of last year, there was about 57 square feet of shopping center space per household in the United States. In 2000, that number was 55. And keep in mind that since 2000 to 2022, e-commerce has gone from virtually a very small percentage of total retail sales to about 20% of retail sales. So mathematically, you just don't need as much shopping mall space in this country, despite the fact that there is more per capita. That leads us to believe that the shopping mall will be a disproportionate source of uh, store closures moving forward. And finally, the area that is going to be most at risk is small retailers. Um, About 58% of the stores in the United States 
are operated by companies that have less than 20 employees. So it's just those mom and pop retailers who don't have the resources to compete as effectively with the, the likes of these, these big, well-capitalized players who are making enormous and substantial investments in their businesses right now. Okay, so if we're thinking about what this means for investors, before we come to the potential you know, beneficiaries from, from this, what, what about the publicly traded chains? You mentioned Bed Bath, which I guess is a difficult case, but there are some other chains out there that are publicly traded, maybe closing some stores. Um, and and uh, are, there, are there ones where you think the chains are really in trouble long-term or are there ones where they're gonna be closing some stores and that can help them? That's exactly what they need. You know, these kind of, you know, the specialty chains. I'm thinking of like a, a Foot Locker or some of the other chains like that. So um, an area that I cover is consumer electronics. A retailer that has been effective at repositioning store base is Best Buy. It's been um, closing some of its larger stores and moving into a smaller fo- footprint. So that's a good example of where there has been closings, but it's it's leading to a, a stronger, better positioned retailer. There's going to be other retailers who are not as well situated, uh, not in the universe that I cover. And so I'm resistant to put anyone in play at, as a result. And then well, we have 50,000 fewer stores five years from now. You know, I think of Amazon. Who, who else stands to benefit from that? Think of Walmart, too. Walmart's going to be putting 15 to $20 billion in CapEx into the ground, into its stores each year for the foreseeable future. It's, it's going to be automating its distribution centers. It's going to be putting uh, more resources towards things like Walmart Plus. At the end of the day, what the customer wants is a frictionless experience. For a retailer like the size of Walmart, it's going to have the resources uh, to be able to create a better experience for the customer. It's going to allow it to gain a disproportionate amount of market share. Similarly, Target. Target is well situated because of the customer segment that it serves, the product categories that it offers, and all the enhancements it's made to its business model over the last few years, like drive up, like remodeling its stores, like launching new and innovative private label alternatives. So our view is that the two categories will be the large well-positioned players like a Walmart, like a Target, as well as some of the more niche players that had differentiated experience. Let me offer you a couple. Number one is Academy Sports. That's a, a retailer that tends to serve communities in the South with more opening price points, sporting goods in a bigger box that as there's consolidation in the sporting goods sector, which we've already seen, but that should continue, that'll benefit retailer like Academy Sports. All I know is on, on one hand, you think, why do you need sporting goods chains? On the other hand, when you have kids and when they're in sports, it's not like when me and you were kids. It, it, it's like you just spend endless amounts endless. of money. I mean, I, I just I'm throwing money in every direction on sports leagues and equipment and all this different stuff. Not, not only that, Jack, but also the fact that you and I are sitting at home and having this conversation. What that means is we have permanently um, transitioned to a more casual society. And as a result, we're going to be uh, wearing more athletic wear, more casual footwear. That's going to be to the benefit of retailers like Academy Sports 
And so it's a, it's a play on more uh, work from home and more time at home. Okay. Any uh, others, so, any others come to mind like that? Yeah. Um, another one is, 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 is a retailer that, that um, is disrupting the flooring market. It's, it's part of the home improvement. It's called floor and decor. Uh, they, it's it's big boxes that sell hard surface products like flooring, like uh, uh, countertops, uh, shower doors. It's got a unique value proposition where there's very low prices and a broad assortment. That's another retailer that stands to benefit uh, uh, because of uh, consolidation in the retail landscape. Yeah, I can imagine that's the kind of thing where you got to see it. You can't buy it online. You got to go there and kind of see the stuff. And that's yeah. that's right. It's a very considered purchase. What happens when, to all these stores when, when, when they all close? I mean, what happens to all this space? Are, are there, you know, I guess there's no more retail retailers coming along to fill that space. Does it get repurposed for something else? It will, that's, that's the key. It'll be need to re, be repurposed to a more productive use. And whether that's uh, residential real estate, you know, schools, um, fitness facilities, it will be repurposed over time, but but it will take time for that to be repurposed. I think it's going to be pickleball courts based on Could what be. I'm seeing. All pickleball. Thanks so much for your time, Michael. Good to see you. Same here. Take care. Thank you, Michael and John, and thank all of you for listening. Jackson Cantrell is our producer. Jackson, last week we mentioned that this will be your last episode. You're leaving the glitz and glamour of the Barons podcasting world. Now, we're going to miss you, and we appreciate all your contributions. Anything to say? I I can't lie. I'm a little bit misty-eyed right now, but it's... You are a crier. <laughs> Go ahead. But it's it's been so great to uh, work with you these last couple of years and the whole Barron's team. And Hard rap in five, <laughs> four. No, no pressure. A, a huge thank you yeah. to our listeners because uh, they... Oscar Music Rising. They make this show worth doing, and I'm so excited to join them as a, a dedicated listener myself. That sounds great. You can, you can finally start listening to the podcast. That sounds I, great. I <laughs> Don't, do not leave me a crappy review, all right? All right. Four, four stars. <laughs> Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you listen on Apple, you can write us a review. You can say goodbye to Jackson. If you want, you can send us a question to answer on a future episode of the podcast. You just tape a voice memo and you email it to jack.how, that's H-O-U-G-H, at barons.com. Thanks, and see you next week.